Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, host of the Scene Vault Podcast and the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I spend most of my time locked away in the studio here, but this weekend is my chance to finally get to meet and greet a bunch of you. Come meet me at North Wilkesboro Speedway this Saturday. I'll be at the Moonshine and Motorsports Trail booth in the fan zone at noon. We'll have a show truck there and some cool giveaways as well, so come check us out and say hello. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce, of UNC Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then. The guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. The truck series from when I started in it in 08 and 09 with TRG and then I went back to Kevin's for a year and it was like old school cup racing. 
the one thing I hated about racing all the years was that next deal. You gotta find that next deal. You gotta find that next deal. Ah, my kid needs braces. I gotta find that next deal. My kid's going to college. I gotta find that next deal, right? I think September of 2018 at Richmond was the last race I ever got paid to go work. And I walked out of there and nobody cared. Nobody gave a shit. I put my whole life into it. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. And of course, we are also now a proud part of the Daily Downforce NASCAR content hub. So, Steve, we have been talking about it for months now. Well, actually, I've been talking about it, and you've been rolling your eyes. but this past saturday was my debut in the pace truck at lonesome pine motorsports park up in coburn virginia steve that was better than i could have possibly have imagined and what truly meant a lot to me was the fact that i got several text messages and direct messages on twitter from people wish me good luck and to have a good time I got a message from Keith Rodden, who is actually Austin Dillon's cup crew chief. Really? Even though he was busy in Richmond, he took time out of his day to wish me well and told me to have a great time, which I did. And also, Kevin McKenzie is a huge supporter of this podcast, and he actually made the trip from his home in Maryville, Tennessee to Coburn just to be there for this huge event in motorsports history. Huge event in motorsports history, huh? Well, Rick, I tell you what, if that's the way you think of it, that's the way it will be. You deserve it. (laughs) And as soon as I got out of the truck after the last race, Kevin actually did a quote-unquote interview with me. All right? So, Steve, (laughs) you have to hear this. Oh, we got Rick Houston on the other side of the microphone and camera today. Uh, He's been looking for this opportunity to drive a pace car. Uh, I think everybody's well aware of it, and I don't think uh, it could have happened to a nicer guy. But he's had a hard day. So, Rick, before that feeling wears off, give us your feedback. What was this like today? That was way better than I could have possibly have imagined. All those years I talked about driving the pace truck, pace car, pace vehicle, this was worth it. And I'm glad everybody's safe today. Lots of good racing. So if you don't have anything to do a couple of weeks, Saturday night, Saturday afternoon, come on out to Lonesome Pine Motorsports Park. You will not be disappointed. Uh, One thing I've got to add, I guess you've been sitting nonstop in that truck. I lost track of the time, (laughs) but I think the race program is now in its finishing its fifth hour. You've not been out of that truck all day. uh, And how in the world did you make it that long without making a restroom break? I got to (laughs) pee. 
So why don't we just do what the NASCAR guys say they do? They just go, right? Yeah, yeah. They just go. Yeah. I hate to mess up the vehicle, so especially my first day, so I couldn't do that. Couldn't feed in their vehicle, but now we're all good. Well, having the opportunity to uh, observe you, uh, you look like a professional. Sure didn't look like a rookie, and uh, kudos to you, Rick. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me watching. Thank you. Thank you a lot, Kevin. I appreciate it. Well, Rick, that was a great interview. Kevin had his question. Now, I've got some questions. Uh-oh. Now, even though you had looked forward to this for so long and really anticipated it, you got to admit, was there some point during the day when you got a bit nervous about what you were about to do? I have never experienced in my life, I don't think, a bigger sense of it's time to put up or shut up. <laughs> because especially my understanding was that I was going to be there and was going to ride shotgun with an experienced pace car driver. Yeah. Well, that person was evidently sick and not there. So they threw me to the keys and said, have at it boys. <laughs> so the, the star was not available. So the understudy had to come in at that last notice, right? Yes, sir. And let me tell you, that was kind of nerve wracking, but everybody there was so nice and so understanding. And the event was run so well that it mm. went off without a hitch. I was amazed at how well they were wow. able to schedule everything. And Steve, we were right on the schedule the entire time. And I even got to get out and give some cars instructions and tell them where to line up. I radioed the tower and told them about debris that was on the racetrack. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you were into awesome. it, huh? Yeah, you were really into it. <laughs> was there any single thing about driving the pace car that was the most difficult to learn? Any particular thing? I don't think there was anything that was most difficult to learn. It was just trying to keep up with everything that was happening on the track and also listening to the tower and being sure to hit the lights when a caution would come out. So that was interesting, but once I got in it and got comfortable, I tried to keep the same line around the racetrack, tried to look out for stuff on the racetrack, debris and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was absolutely everything that I thought it was going to be. Well, Rick, it sounds like you did a marvelous job. Now, did you meet and talk with any of the competitors? Now, I mean the drivers or crew chiefs, not management, okay? And not officials, any of the competitors. Well, actually, as a matter of fact, when I first got there and was about to walk across the crossover gate, I was talking to a gentleman and he was from there in Coburn. And of course, I've mentioned on the podcast before that my mom was from Coburn and his granddaughter was running a legends car there. Oh, really? They're from Coburn. And actually my first cousin, Angie Childress, who lives in Coburn still was this young lady's babysitter when she was younger <laughs> <laughs> so it is indeed a small world but then after the race i thought it was pretty cool there were a couple of cars who got together during the event and the tower thought that they might you know be in confrontation after the race and i went to the tech shed after the race and was going to pick up some mighty mouse decals that that we had a part in doing one of the drivers who was involved in that incident came up to the tech director and they were talking and they, everything was calm. Nothing had happened. There was no confrontation or anything like that. But he looked at me and he said, you know what? 
you led more laughs than anybody today. (laughs) (laughs) Another feather in your cap, huh? Honestly and truly, I don't know how many laps I made. There were several cautions. There was one time where I was out on the track for one caution and they called the green flag one to go. And by the time I made it back to where I was supposed to park, another caution came out and I never even stopped, went straight back out onto the racetrack. So oh. I definitely got some track time yesterday. Well, Rick, let's clarify for our listeners. You are going back to Coburn, correct? Are you going to do this again? Yes, sir. I'm 55 years old and I have finally found my calling in this life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rick, I'm happy for you. There are a lot of people in this world who are 55 years old and still don't know what the heck they're doing. Steve, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh Oh, (laughs) because in the third and final installment of our interview with Butch Hilton, Butch talks about the end of his Winston cup career, his career rebirth in the truck series and how he views his legacy in the sport today. Then in our second segment, speaking of driving the pace vehicle, we have a Uh big announcement for our second segment. Steve, you ain't going to believe this one. No, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we have new Patreon support from Steve. Are you ready for this one? We have new Patreon support from none other than Bobby Labonte. The Bobby Labonte? The Bobby Labonte. How about that? And I texted him just to make sure it was him. And he texted me right back and said, yes, sir, that was me. I saw where you had Butch Hilton on the show. And I wanted to hear what he had to say for myself early. And so he signed up for Patreon. And of course, one of the incentives for our Patreon listeners is they get the episode a couple of days early, usually. Well, Bobby, in my mind, you're a champ. More ways than one. We also enjoy Patreon support from Mark Martin and David Reagan. Ah, how about that? Yes, sir, we do. This week, we also have PayPal help from Paul Friedrich. Straight up cash on the barrel head this time. No beer rebates. Oh, man. (laughs) Paul's reaching his own pockets. (laughs) (laughs) We got it straight up from PayPal from Paul. So, Paul, thank you. Bobby, thank you. Say it every week, but we appreciate what you do to keep us going here on the podcast. And listeners, if you possibly could, please consider supporting us on the monthly basis via patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Same Vault Podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the Same Vault Podcast or venmo.com slash the Same Vault Podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. Crystal let me fly up on the plane for nothing, and I went up to Michigan, and uh, Wayne Auden, who's the greatest guy ever, by, by the way, he, uh, he got me a pit pass so I could get in because I didn't even have a NASCAR license over the seat. You know, they're expensive, so I didn't buy one. 
and got in the garage and started walking around and Tommy Baldwin gave me a chance to come work at Yates to run their pull down rig and I had done a lot of pull down stuff seven post stuff you know at Childress and this and that and uh, Andy Petrie had built the Petrie plate the first Petrie plate right so when we won Daytona with Stuart when I was working at Harvick's we went up to Andy's house where he had the very first one and me and Andy pulled that car down together and Andy deserves a lot of credit for that win because he, he taught me something on that pull down plate that about spring angle that I hadn't seen so Andy's one of my favorite people he's still to this day he's a great guy so I went to work for them and they were really struggling they weren't coal binding they weren't doing a lot of things and they were way behind and I think uh, Slugger Labby was the crew chief on the other car for Jarrett and um, Tommy was doing Elliot's car Eminem's car so I kind of showed him how we coal bound and stuff and we went to Chicago and qualified better and still needed to do some work the cars were way behind and and this is nothing against doug and, and robert they're both the greatest people around they're they're so genuine right both of them but they were just way behind they had, robert told me he goes i don't even know how to look for a sponsor they always came to me so when we lost the yeah the the you know the um, ups deal they didn't know what to do yeah. right and Doug was completely immersed in Roush Yates engines, so he didn't have a lot to do with it. So, now were you? At I, what point did you become a crew chief? Well, so I'll get to that. So we were. Um, well, I was doing the pull down work and going to the racetrack and kind of just consulting and mainly working with Tommy. I didn't have a really good relationship with um, um, Slugger. He he didn't really want the help, right? And he was doing DJ's car. So something happened at Pocono while they were there, and I I wasn't privy to it. And we got back and. The 88 had almost rubbed a hole in the bottom of their oil cooler. They were over-traveling. He was doing this trick where he was preloading the bar and taking all the rounds out of the car. It was illegal, but they were getting it through tech. And they got into a big argument. I was in my office, which is right by the pull-down rig, and sitting there, and him and Tommy and Robert were out there, and, man, they were going at it, all three of them. And Robert fired them both on the spot. And I'm like, wow. And he stormed out of there, so I didn't know what the fuck. I hope I don't get fired, right, because Tommy hired me. So about four hours later, I get called up to the office and said, hey, you're going to do Dale's car, and uh, Cully Bearclaw is going to do Elliot's car. Okay. So <laughs> I'm a cup crew chief. And Dale was so good to me. He did not have to accept any of this. I think he already knew. He had something cooking with Toyota, right, to go to Michael's. There was some of that. was I'm sure that was all happening behind the scenes, right? That stuff doesn't happen in just a day or two. But he was great to work with. And we started kind of undoing, unpacking the setup and trying to get back to it. And we went to uh, California and we ran pretty good. I think we finished fourth. And uh, we'd seen some gains, you know, we were getting better. And uh, he decided to leave at the end of the year. And this, I got to another turning or another crossroads. He wanted me to go to Michael's with him. And Jason Burdett, who was our car chief, who's a brilliant guy, great chassis guy, smart as hell about racing. He's going to go too, right? Well, I decide Robert's been really good to me, and he's paying me more money than I ever made in my life. I mean, when you get to be a cup crew chief at that level, it, it pays really good, right? And I had never really got that, and I was kind of shocked by it. I had a brand-new Lincoln Navigator to drive and personal relationship with Edsel Ford, you know, because he'd come by the shop all the time. And so I stayed. And Jason came to me and said, I'm going. I said, I think it's the best thing. You, you're ready, dude. Go do it. Go both feet, all you got, right? And so they went to do that deal. And I stayed on a little bit of a false premise because 
Robert had kind of promised me we were going to get a young fire-breathing driver to replace Dale. Well, a lot of stuff's happened behind the scenes that I don't know about, right? Well, Fort's over with, in walks Ricky Rudd, and he's going to drive the car, and he hadn't driven in two years, and I don't know Ricky at all. And when I was around, Ricky wasn't really a factor at most races. And not that Ricky's not a great race car driver, because to get to that level and do all the things he did, he's obviously super talented. So we, we start off kind of slow and get to know each other. Well, this is the year where they're running half of the old car, the twisted sister cars that are just really jacked, right? And the, the infamous wing COT. <laughs> so we're way behind on engineering. We, don't, we have one engineer. It's uh, Travis uh, Geisler is my engineer. He's now the head of Penske, right? Yeah. And Travis is smart, but we have no tools, nothing, right? So we struggle along run a cup okay a couple times we go to, so we built a brand new twisted sister car built the chassis ourselves. it was all tig well this thing was beautiful one of the nicest cars i ever built it was a part of building and uh we go to california speedway and we're qualified good and we're running good we're, we're running top five i'm thinking man okay we're starting to turn the corner on this deal ricky's happy he's racing you can tell you can hear by his voice so he he goes to pass jeff gordon on the outside for like third and he passes him and Jeff misjudges it and clips him trying to get in. You know, it's the draft, so he's trying to get in behind him. And he, Ricky kind of saves it and turns back into the fence and it hits a ton. Where's this? California Speedway. And it breaks Ricky's shoulder. And come to find out, he had gone up in the seat the way it landed. Mm -hmm. And that hadn't happened much and it broke his shoulder. So we were, we were screwed. All the gains we'd made, all the work we'd done to get to know each other, everything we'd done, we're screwed. So I'm begging them to get Johnny Sauter to come drive the car. Well, and I want to be upfront about this. Kenny's, Kenny Wallace is a nice guy. And he's a mediocre race car driver, right? Always was. He had a time when he was pretty good, but not, not at this point. Well, he walks in and he's going to be the driver. So this is like a lead balloon in our shop. All the guys. He really got the deal because he was going to wear the Snickers fire suit on TV on his post-race show that he did. Remember, they did that deal. So this is really bad for all of us. And this, this COT is a handful to drive. There's no travel. We've gone down the wrong path on the bump stops, so we're having to back up. And I need somebody that can really hustle one of these things to keep us where we're at. Ricky's, or, uh, Kenny's a super nice guy. He treats everybody with awesome respect. We, we were fine. We got along fine. But we, frankly, we ran bad. The all year. So at the end of 07, I got fired. And I really felt that was wrong because I didn't feel like I got a fair shot at all. But little did I know they were selling the team, right? Because that was when all that went on, when it went to Roush and all yeah, that stuff, yeah. right? So I understood later what happened. And Robert was awesome to me. He gave me like four months severance pay, which was a huge amount of money right and i was like really thankful to him so i me and my youngest son we were racing rc dirt cars and he drove a little bit for tony stewart who owned custom works which is one of his little hobby companies so we went to the nationals that winter i didn't think much of it we were okay financially everything was good and i get a call at the nationals and it's andy lolly and he uh, he says hey we're putting a truck team together would you mind coming to interview for the crew chief deal like yeah sure that'd be cool so that's how my cup career went it wasn't great i don't think we we didn't make a mark and you know yourself you're 
probably the highlight of it was we figured out a coal buying deal at Daytona for qualifying, and we put both cars on the front row at Daytona that year in uh, 07. Remember that? We sat both of them on the front row. So that was something that uh, a dear friend of mine that's a great shot guy and me worked out in Asheville on the Olin's seven post they had up there. Robert gave us 30 grand to go buy time up there, which is like pulling teeth from him because he didn't believe in all that, right? It was motor and trick setups. And we'd worked out this coal bind deal in the right front. And so what it did is it didn't rub the valence. And remember how you'd leave and you'd kill the valence and then it wouldn't be as quick the second lap. Well, we figured out how not to do that. And it was, it was like 18 counts of drag in the middle of the corner. And we put both cars on the front row. So it was kind of cool. That was, that was the highlight of the year for us. <laughs> so you sent me a, some bullet points of the teams that you've worked with and, and everything. And you talked earlier about doing some sports car racing. And you actually wound up racing IMSA, and then in 2009, you won the 24 hours at Daytona. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, Andy had uh, called me to do the truck deal in 08, and he uh, he was racing the IMSA car for TRG, or the racers group, and that's the company that was running these cars at the time. So they needed a little help in 08 to go down and call the race on one of the rental cars. So I went down and did it, and we finished second. So I kind of got a taste for it, and I'd done it earlier in my career. The Rolex is a really cool race. When you sit in the driver's meeting, there's F1 drivers in there. There's yeah. cup drivers. There's people from all over the world. It's really neat. Mario Andretti was there. You know, I mean, just it's, it's a really cool environment, and the race is really hard. I mean, you think about it, 24 hours going hard. They don't, they don't ride around anymore. They, they go hard the whole time. So we went through 08, and truck deal Andy didn't do that great you know trying to transition to ovals and so in 09 um, we were getting ready to take J.R. Fitzpatrick and do some races for him out of Canada he was like the next kid out of Canada really talented young man his father had a big company a big crane company so they had funding too which is the greatest thing you can get nowadays (laughs) right a a talented young man with funding so Andy was going to partner with Justin Marks to do the full season in IMSA in the GTD class which is like Porsches, Ferraris, Aston Martin, stuff like that. So he came to me and said, hey, what do you think about getting involved with building our new car? And I'm like, yeah. So we talked a lot about, and I'd always, you know, they were in the same shop with us, so I knew them guys and talked to them. And a Porsche is a unibody car. So over time, when you race it like that, it gets pretty flexible. So we talked about some ideas to, to fix that, right, and to do some things. So Justin agreed to fund it, and so we brought a, they bought a brand-new GT3 Porsche from Stuttgart. It came into Atlanta on the plane. It's like a $350,000 car, right? They bring it up to the shop, and they got three or four contract mechanics that work on a car during the season, right? And they work like – they have a different thing. They do, like, contract work, right? They don't really work for the team. So he's like, what do you want to do? I said, take it all apart. And he goes, what do you mean? It's brand-new. I said, all apart, all the way to the chassis. So they were – Andy had to come in and kind of get everybody on the same page, right? Hey, we're going to do this and this and that. So we took it all, we tore it all the way down. It had all the parts laid out on tables. And we soda blasted the car. A friend of mine came over and he soda blasted it because it's got all these like little pockets and stuff in it. So we didn't want to sandblast it and have that weight. And then we washed all that out because the soda would melt. And then we went back and we missile rod welded all the seams. And then this great fabricator friend of mine, <laughs> Tyler LaBelle, he raised the the big problem was wheel clearance, so you couldn't travel the cars. Like, and you know, being a NASCAR guy, we're like, we got to travel. We got to get this thing yeah. on the ground, right? So 
he went in and he bought this tool and we were able to raise the rear wheel tubs up in the car an inch and a half and you couldn't tell it. You could not tell it when he got done with it. This guy's a talented fabricator, right? Then he, you were allowed to open up the wheel wells because the tire clearance, right? So we, he built really nice wheel flanges for it and everything. We put it all back together. Every single piece we worked on. I mean, every bracket got drilled. We threw a bunch of stuff away. We had, I mean, we probably took 30, 40 pounds off the car, and it was way stiffer. We added some bars, this and that. And then he's like, well, I said, we need to go to the wind tunnel. He's like, what do you mean? That's expensive. I don't think we can do that. So it, Aerodyne has two tunnels over there. A lot of people don't know this. They have their full-blown tunnel. Then they have a thing called a B tunnel over there that's like only $200 an hour. It's not active, and it doesn't roll the wheels but you can do some ABA testing in it. So we took the, this car has coilovers in it, so we put bump stops in it and took all the rounds out of it and kind of got it down. You're talking about an IMSA? IMSA car, okay. yeah. yeah. Set it back down and we blew it. And I don't think he had talked to Porsche about that. And this was kind of a factory Porsche effort. And I don't know if they were real happy with me about that because we, we figured out some things about the car that were probably something they didn't think about. It's stuff that we looked at. Like we sealed the windshield to the hood with some foam underneath stuff we do on a NASCAR and it was way better. I yeah. said, well, why aren't we doing this? And then the car has a pan under the whole bottom, right? So we started just removing pieces. I'm just, I'm trying to find hot spots. You know, I got eight hours to burn here, so I'm going to do it. So it ended up being the best was leaving the middle pan off and it was way better. So then we did a wing sweep and got all that and all the, the there's these wickers that slide in and out of the wing and we got all that worked out. Here's what it does. Changes the aero balance this much. And we took all these notes and had the car probably, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 more counts of downforce on it and probably, I don't know, 25 counts of drag out of it from what we started. But the, the rear windows are different. There's some different stuff about it. We changed the way we cooled the rear end coolers and stuff. So we show up down there in a the Porsche, guys. <laughs> They're like, what, what have you done to this car? And they recommend running these cars really stiff, right? You ever watch them, they kind of bounce. Well, we figured out a deal at the test down there. We went to the Roar. We were running real soft springs, but we had bump stops that would stop it on the banking so it wouldn't over-travel and hit. And this is really good. Infield's really good, and it's good on the banking. So I didn't think I was going to go to the race. And Andy and Justin comes in my office, and we're prepping for Daytona for the truck deal. That's my primary job right he goes hey what do you think about coming down and calling the race i'm like yeah i'd be all for that that'd be cool right and I, they knew i'd done it once before i said i got two things though we're going to do different i said i'm not sitting on your crappy pit box because it killed my back all night it's a long day it's it's not 24 hours it's more like 36 hours because the garage opens in the morning at like six wow and you go through a warm-up there's a 15 minute warm-up and then you can bring the car back in and work on it and stuff yeah and the Porsches have a little trouble with the half shafts, so we put brand new half shafts in, and Andy goes and breaks them in at like half speed in the warm up and start the race with brand new half shafts. So I made them bring me a, a table down, and I brought a conference, just had these big, nice conference chairs. And I brought two computers down. I had one for weather and one for the timing and scoring, and I was able to be comfortable all night. That made a huge difference. So we go down and qualify outside pole, and uh, it's Andy. And Justin are our primary drivers. And then Porsche gave us Pat Long, who's, I think, one of the best Porsche drivers on the planet, uh, York Bergmeister, and another guy that kicked a little money in to help for Daytona because Daytona is very expensive. I think I put 24 sets on the car the whole weekend. So it's uh, R.J. Valentine. You ever hear that name? Yeah, he, he's, he's like a gentleman driver. Yeah. And 
he only wants to drive enough to get a watch. I think you have to drive 30 minutes to get a watch if you're on the squat, right? So he doesn't drive till the very end. So we take off and we're racing the hell out of another factory Porsche and it's a, it's a dog fight. We're going as hard as we can. They're not, they, you know, you can't just ride, you have to go hard. Right. So we're going hard and we'd worked out a brake change mid race. So we changed the front and rear rotors and, and calipers and everything that went real smooth. Guys did a great job. And Pat is like two tenths quicker than anybody. Andy tweaked his shoulder in qualifying and he was off just a little bit that night. So he's wearing me out, put Pat in, put Pat in. Right. So Pat ended up driving like 10 hours of the race and Eventually, the car we were racing, it was us about three laps ahead of the rest of the GTD field. Well, they broke their half shafts with about four hours to go. So we're, we're, now we are riding, right? And we're riding. And so now Andy's doing most of the driving because he knows the car better than anybody. And he's babying the, the transmission. And so at the end, and I, I got a little mad over this. And me and Kevin Buckler, who's owned the team at the time, he, we got into it pretty good after the race over this. He, he, they're all fired up. They want to put RJ in. Well, he hadn't even, he'd, he'd driven like five minutes in practice, and it rained, and he got out. We're going to win the 24 hours of Daytona, and we're going to stick this guy in. And you got to realize it's not just – there's 50 cars out there, and the, D, the DP cars are six seconds faster. So they're coming, and if you, it's really yeah. easy to get taken yeah. out, and we're going to yeah. win the 24-hour race. Yeah. Just leave Andy in, let him finish. Nope, they put him RJ in, and Andy ran up on the tower, of the, the, the Goodyear Tower, and he talked him through it. And he almost got wiped out twice, and luckily he didn't, and he took the checkered flag, and in the end, it was all good. <laughs> you know what Kevin Buckler gave me for that win? $300. <laughs> That's it. Did you stay up for the whole race? Whole race. I, I got there at 6 and helped prep the car, got everything ready, and I stayed up for the whole race. I called the entire race, never left the box except to use the bathroom. And you got three hundred dollars. He gave me three hundred bucks. I brought and other my other stipulation was I didn't, didn't say this. I wanted to bring my hauler down, so I had my lounge and stuff. You know, my truck hauler down, my NASCAR truck hauler yeah. down. So they let us do that because I didn't want it. Their their hauler was hectic all the time because he had three or four cars in the race, and there's all these paid drivers, and yeah. they're all a bunch of whiny babies, and I didn't want to <laughs> deal with that. So it yeah. gave me Pat Yorg and Andy and Justin a place to go to talk about it work on it right because yeah. we we, we yeah. you know we got to practice for a couple of days before we got going right and then we had a motorhome for them guys to sleep in it was a, i can't imagine what it cost it's probably 300 grand to run that race because it just tires people food i mean you, there's a lot to think about when you do it there's a lot that goes into it we had to have a tent put up because we didn't have you know it can rain so you got to cover everything and they put those white tents up along pit road so there's a lot that goes into it. i learned a lot about logistics doing that you gotta have all the spare parts yeah and luckily we didn't need any but you gotta have them you wind up in the truck series and and you're there for quite a while you were at um with khi and then you were with red horse for most of that time and then you were with brandon bill i finished up with them was that just familiar territory to you was the truck series did it become home yes the uh the truck series from when i started in it in 08 in 09 with TRG and then I went back to Kevin's for a year and it was like old school cup racing the teams kind of worked together you could still there was a lot of ingenuity going into the bodies chassis setups the rules were much looser than a COT or any of the bush stuff that was coming around right Uh, Wayne Otten I don't know if you've ever been around Wayne much but he is one of the I don't understand why Wayne's not running the Cup Series. In my opinion, that's who should be running the Cup Series because he understands this sport probably better than anybody alive right now. He's been there so long and done it. 
and it was just fun working with him and his guys because you could you could be off a little bit and he'd work with you to get the show on right we were putting a show on the other thing i liked about it a ton was it backed the schedule way down and frankly I, you know i've been married 38 years i think and i've probably only been around my wife 15 of them so being home a lot was awesome being around my grandkids you know getting born and stuff that was awesome and tom deloach is such a smart intuitive person it's hard not to enjoy working with him he taught me something every day about business people life investing you know and this guy was the cfo of mobile <laughs> he's a pretty smart guy right <laughs> so i i loved working there and the one thing i hated about racing all the years was that next deal you got to find that next deal you got to find that next deal Ah, my kid needs braces. I got to find that next deal. My kid's going to college. I got to find that next deal, right? And I didn't have that. With me and Tom had a handshake deal, and I could stay as long as I wanted. And it was fun. And Tim, Timmy was a really good race car driver for trucks. He he drove the heck out of the truck every week. Gave it all. We won some races. You know, it was good. I think Tom finally got tired of spending money. We never could find a sponsor, and I think that got old for him pretty quick. 2018 you left the sport what brought that about was it just time well i'd watched i don't want i want to say this nicely because i don't want to i don't want to make anybody feel bad but i'd watched a lot of guys like me that didn't quite make the engineering cut when it changed kind of fall out the bottom of the sport and i didn't want to be that guy right so Mr. Mr. Brown called me, and he was doing a, he was trying to put together a Bush team for Brandon to drive, and this is in 2017. Tom had closed the team midseason; he just had enough, and we'd spent money, 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 money. So I was out of work, and I'm like, I got to do something. So now I'm staying in a hotel up in Fredericksburg, Virginia, four nights a week, and driving back and forth. My wife's down here. This is not a good situation. The Browns are great people, and they have a great vision of what they want to try to do. We're building a new shop. I helped plan all that. And, and really, the theme, I think the reason he hired me is I went up there and I said, look, it don't matter how we run right now. It's all about the infrastructure. If you're going to build a team, you got to get the infrastructure in place first. And we'll go race, but it, you, we're not going to run good because we don't have any infrastructure. So we end up, we'd be a top 20. We'd, I think we run 17th at Dover, and we had probably three-year-old engines out the back door of a place. So it, I was kind of proud of how we ran and we we made the cars a lot nicer and we made the hauler nicer we did everything we needed to do and then we went into 018 or 2018 and uh it was going to be a lot of the same we'd moved into the new shop so that was nice but it's still in fredericksburg virginia this is not good for me so a boy that had been my car chief billy haggerty who's probably one of the best car chiefs i ever had besides uh, jason burdett him and jason were about even he uh he his son was in Boy Scouts with another guy that worked at Cat in Winston Salem, and they had a secret project going on where they were gonna they had bought Progress Rail and they were gonna move their EMD engine production from Chicago Illinois down to Winston and it was all secret because they didn't there was unions involved and a bunch of layoffs you know there's there's laws about that right so I went up interviewed with a guy named um, uh, Jim Watrobe who. He's a drag racer side, you know, on the side, and he's drag raced for years. So he kind of got what I was, 
and we hit it off right away. I love Jim. He's a great guy. He's been awesome to me. He's taught me so much about manufacturing. It's a different world than racing. So it took a while. They kind of worked it out, got the money worked out, got everything worked out. And I, I think September of 2018 at Richmond was the last race I ever got paid to go work. And I walked out of there and, you know, I say this a lot. My son worked in racing too. And he says this too, because he, he works with me now at up there. He, he didn't want to miss his kids growing up. Nobody cared. Nobody gave a shit. I put my whole life into it. Bled, sweat, fought, did everything to try to get, you know, put the show on, do the deal. And the only person that really calls me regularly is Wayne Otten. That's it. And it's just the nature of the beast. And you can be angry about it or you can't be, but it's the nature of sport. It moves on, right? And that's okay. And it's one of the, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come in and talk about it because you know i didn't really get to have that closure <laughs> i i didn't finish the season you know yeah, yeah yeah um best decision i ever made though because and the race proved it so i had um mason diaz driving that night he'd rented the car out from underneath brown brandon and mr brown and mr diaz own southern national is that a track down there i've never been down there i think in south carolina or north carolina so he's driving um they got this deal where you could buy old tires way cheaper so of course we're doing it as cheap as we can so but you got to buy like two sets at the track so we buy those two sets so i have to make this decision every week what am i going to do with these tires am i going to run the shit to begin with or the good tires so i qualify on a good set that's on the first run and we qualified like 21st and mason drives up to 11th and i'm thinking this is winning for us right there's four of us full-time on this team against jr motorsports you know some of the best teams in racing right that really super good guys with lots of resources so i feel pretty good about this and we put the next set on and we maintain run the whole segment like 10th 9th 11th and i got no more tires left put the next set on and it it's not even the same car yeah you know what i mean and we ended up 17th or something and i walked out of there and i'm like that's exactly why i made this decision and i haven't regretted it i mean i miss it but you miss the competition side of it but I started shooting um, comp competitively with with Billy when we went to work. Billy works with me at Winston-Salem now. And that's kind of taken up that. So I get a little bit of fun, comp competitive deal with that. And we, we travel around. So you, you shoot know. competitive? Yeah, we shoot really? the, th the three-gun series. Okay. Uh, so you use a rifle, pistol, shotgun on a closed course for time and accuracy. Oh, wow. It's fun. They, uh, there's a, a monthly match in Ashboro that we shoot. And we go down to Clinton House in South Carolina and shoot. We'll shoot some majors here and there. So we've been to Kentucky and shot. And wow. Yeah. It's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And so that's kind of gotten both of us, because Billy changed tires for years, too. And it's really, when that buzzer goes off and it, the timer, it goes beep, it's kind of the same thing. Because yeah. it's like, yeah. you know, <laughs> so it gets the adrenaline going. So awesome. I'm not as good as I used to be. I'm getting kind of old, but it's still fun. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to get across? Anything in particular? Uh, no, I just, I'd really like to thank Steve Mill and Jimmy Maycart. Without them, I don't think I'd ever be where I was, you know. Them two guys were, they were instrumental in giving me an opportunity to do what I did. And and that goes from the deep, deepest part of my heart because one, piece, one thing I think a piece most people miss is the families that are behind this and the money that we make, what it does, what we do with that money. And that's raise kids, put braces on. I put my son through college. You know, there's a lot that goes into that and not having the ability to do that 
it means something, right? So I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me do this. Taking the checkered flag and driving to victory lane is the goal for any racer. It tells the competition, my accomplishments resulted in a trip to the winner's circle. It's no different as a business owner, team leader, or coach. Recognizing those deserving is what we do every day at Five Star Awards and Engraving. Hi, race fans. This is Bob Laird, director of sales at Five Star and former Jackman for Buddy Arrington back in the 80s. Laser engraved and full-color corporate awards, as well as crystal, plaques, trophies, and promotional products are just some of a sample of what we offer at Five Star. With state-of-the-art equipment in our North Carolina facility, let our experienced graphic artists take you from idea to concept and ultimately the finish line. To view our beautiful and unique designs, please visit us at fivestarawards.net. The entire project can be completed online. Please reach out to me at bob.laird at fivestarawards.net. 919-954-1130. As a thank you, everyone who contacts me will receive at no charge a collection of NASCAR memorabilia featuring Richard Petty while supplies last. That's bob.laird at fivestarawards.net, 919-954-1130. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. After parting ways with Kevin Harvick Incorporated, Butch Hilton got hooked up with Robert Yates Racing through a connection with Tommy Baldwin, and he's working there. When all of a sudden, Tommy and Slugger Labby, who was Dale Jarrett's crew chief at the time, and who will be in the Scene Vault podcast hot seat beginning next week, Tommy and Slugger get let go. And Butch isn't sure how that's going to impact him because Tommy is the one who brought him to the team. So if Tommy's gone, is Butch going to be next? And as it turned out, Butch was impacted, but not in the way he was thinking. With Slugger out the door, DJ's going to need a crew chief. So tag Butch Hilton, you're it. Doesn't sound like it turned out too badly right there for Butch at all. I mean, it could have been worse. I said right there, too, by the way. <laughs> DJ was headed to Toyota and Michael Waltrip racing the following season. UPS went with him. And the next year, Butch was working with Ricky Rudd as his crew chief at RYR. And Butch actually said that Robert told him that he didn't know how to go look for sponsors. They had always come to him. There was definitely a period of time when that organization started its slow decline. Steve, what happened there in your opinion? Well, Rick, I think you just described it pretty well. You got drivers who are planning to leave. You got crew chiefs who are fired and replaced by another crew chief. You got a team owner that says he does not know how to get a sponsor. Do you detect some kind of disunity there? Do you detect some kind of separation? I do, and I do believe that contributed to the slow demise of the team. I don't know that I would call it disunity necessarily as much as it was just the NASCAR team owner business model was changing. Yes, but well, by the same, when the changes come around, not everybody is satisfied. Yeah. And when everybody is not satisfied, that's when you start to have a lack of harmony. Robert was a longtime fixture in the sport as an engine builder. He had been in the sport for a long, long time. 
and he was more comfortable under True. the hood of that race car True. with grease under his fingernails than he was in a boardroom. I agree with you. I think that was part of the problem right there. So I think that's a good part of what happened. But at the end of the 2006 season, Butch had a choice to make. DJ apparently offered to take him along to Toyota and MWR, or he could stick with RYR. And he was making the best money of his career. He had a comped Lincoln Navigator as his personal vehicle. He knew Edsel Ford, who would drop by the shop. So that would be a lot yeah. to give up. You can yeah. fully understand where he's coming from. Oh, absolutely. When you have a status in a sport that allows you to enjoy the things that Butch was enjoying at this time, that's tough to give up. So he is at a crossroads. Does he take the two-week suspension after the fight he had with a Kevin Harvick Incorporated teammate, or does he not? Or does he go with DJ, or does he stay put? We have all been at that point in our lives where we take one path or another with life-changing impact, no matter which way you choose. And I've thought a lot about this. How would my career have turned out had I not left scene to go to work for NASCAR? And I can honestly say now, <laughs> with the benefit of a lot of hindsight, that it all worked out for the best. If I had stayed at scene, I would have absolutely lost my mind during the seasons when cup drivers and their teams absolutely obliterated the Bush series regulars. And then it would have, Steve, it would have killed my soul to have been there when scene was shut down. I can't even imagine the stress and the uncertainty in the months that led up to that. Well, Rick, there was a certain amount of stress and uncertainty among the employees and staff members of scene. No question about that. Now, I have to admit, I was not quite as shocked as when it all did happen, because I knew it was going to happen. I didn't know when, but I knew it was going to happen because I had contact with individuals within the company that led me to believe we were not exactly on a golden path. Uh, seeing was really being impacted by the Internet. No question about that, as were several other newspapers across the country, the print media in general. So it was just a matter of time. And I was knowledgeable about that. So yeah, it was a bad time, Rick. Don't don't misunderstand me. But I think it was a little bit less so for me. And then if I hadn't been let go by NASCAR, I would have never gotten to do the NASA related things I've gotten to do. Steve, have I, have I ever mentioned the fact that I was in a movie about Neil Armstrong? Uh, yeah, 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 you have. Let's move on. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but most importantly, in all seriousness, I've been a full-time husband to Janie and a daddy to Adam and Jesse, rather than just a few days during the middle of the week. Yeah, Rick, that's very important. Perhaps of all the things that happened to you, that was the best. I think this probably says as much as anything could about where Robert Yates Racing was at that point. Not only did the team lose Dale Jarrett at the end of the 2006 season, it also lost Elliot Sadler to Evernham Motorsports. Butch had been told that the team was going to find young, fire-breathing drivers for both teams, and they were going to get this thing back on track. And David Gilliland did come on board, and he had won that Bush Series race at Kentucky in an unsponsored car. But then the team had to lure Ricky Rudd out of retirement to drive the 88 Snickers car. 
And then what happened in 2007? The COT, the car tomorrow was used in several races. And when it wasn't, that was about the time that these cars were absolutely being twisted sideways and all that mess. And they looked like crabs going down the straightaway. Engineering help with the RYR organization was almost at a standstill. So, yeah, you can see how Ricky and Butch and the rest of the team struggled. And then Ricky gets hurt and misses five races later in the season. Kenny Wallace gets in the car and the team struggled some more. And at the end of the year, Butch gets let go and his Winston Cup career was over. There you have a team based a lot of transition and then put into a situation where they're racing a new car without a whole lot of engineering help. Then they have other situations where Ricky got hurt and someone had to substitute for him. It was just an overall mess, if you ask me, for RYR, and not all of it was their making. Butch said something at this point that I'm going to be honest with you. It really kind of bothered me. He said that he had not made a mark at the Winston Cup level. Hmm. Butch Hilton won multiple races with Mark Martin. He won races with Bobby Labonte. He won the Brickyard 400 and the Southern 500 with Bobby. They won the Winston Cup championship together. He won Bush Series races with Jeff Green, Kevin Harvick, Ron Hornaday, and Tony Stewart. He won the GT class in the 2009 24 Hours of Daytona with Justin Marks as one of his drivers. He went back to KHI and won truck races with Kevin, Ron, and Elliott Sadler. And after joining Red Horse Racing, won five more truck races with Timothy Peters. And uh, Steve, I texted Butch mm-hmm. when I was going through this part of the interview. I texted Butch and I said, listen, you have more championship rings, more Southern 500 rings, more Brickyard 400 rings than I will ever have. And I said, don't you ever forget that. Rick, I'm glad you wrote that text. That really spelled it out. And I got just one more thing to say. Butch Hilton, hold your head high. Here's something that I thought was extraordinarily cold. Now, to kind of scratch that competitive itch, Butch is involved in competitive shooting, where he takes three guns, a rifle, a pistol, and a shotgun on the closed course, where he's judged on time and accuracy. Oh, my. Competitive shooting, huh? Hey, you know, Rick, here's a piece of advice. Don't piss off Butch Hilton. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> hey, race fans. John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. 
Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. Steve, are you ready for this, brother? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, here it goes anyway. First of all, I'd like to introduce our very special guest for this segment. With us are Rick Humphrey, the president and general manager of Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta. Now, how appropriate is that? Because as soon as we finish recording this segment, I'm headed to the tire store for a two-tire pit stop that I'm sure won't be as quick as a NASCAR pit crew. <laughs> and then we also have Rick Goolsby, who is the series manager at Historic Sports Car Racing. So we do have three Ricks with us this week. Rick Houston, Rick Humphrey, and Rick Goolsby. What could go wrong with that? <laughs> Not a thing. <laughs> Well, Mr. Humphrey, before we get started, I want our listeners to know and understand that this was all your idea. I didn't come <laughs> on bended knee begging for this opportunity. I didn't even have to pay you for it. <laughs> well, I'm not going to take credit for it till the Monday after to see how it goes. <laughs> I, I've been around long enough to know that you stay out of the middle of taking credit for anything. And then sometimes, even if it goes well, you really are reluctant to take credit. So I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you know that, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it after the event. How about that? <laughs> you called me. So tell our listeners how you came up with the plan for what we're announcing today. Well, so, um, <laughs> I stumbled upon your podcast and, uh, I have a, a strong, uh, uh, affinity for, uh, what you're doing and and have a long background on the NASCAR side of the business and, and been around for a while, probably longer than I want to admit. And quite honestly, I got tired of listening to you beg about driving a pace car. And I started to have a little bit of a little felt sorry for you. So I thought, well, what kind of opportunity could we could be created to allow Rick Houston to drive the uh, the pace car at Michelin Raceway Road, Atlanta? And uh, as Rick Goolsby is going to go into greater detail, um Later on uh, in this interview, uh, annually at Michigan Raceway Road Atlanta, Historic Sports Car Racing uh, comes to us with an event called the MIDI. This is the 45th year of this event, and each year they have a featured mark. And uh, uh, this year, the featured mark is going to be the 75th anniversary of NASCAR. And so I thought, well, what better opportunity as they celebrate NASCAR's history coupled with your podcast that also is keeping the history of, of NASCAR alive to uh, – to be able to incorporate you into uh, into driving the pace car and that opportunity, so that's kind of where uh, harebrained idea came from. And uh, and if you think that's bad, uh, there's plenty more where that one came from. <laughs> well, see, I love the way that you said that because you said that you have a great affinity for what we're doing on the podcast, preserving NASCAR history. Love what we do, but you also got the dig in that I beg on the podcast. Yeah, I see how it is. I see how it is. Okay, all right. Rick Goolsby, tell me about the event that's coming up at Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta on April 28th through the 30th. I just found out Lynn and Eddie Wood are going to be the Grand Marshals. That is correct. So so the MIDI has been going on, like Rick Humphrey said, for about the last 45 years. 
Uh, we did miss it in, in 2020, uh, but came back with a bang in 2021. Uh, so yeah, this is the 45th anniversary. And, and yeah, I've been working with uh, Rick Humphrey on uh, coming up with a grand marshal. We had some um, help from uh, certain NASCAR officials and everything on on the selection process. And, and we wanted to select a grand marshal that was very worthy and, and very appropriate of of the MIDI and of the celebration of the 75th anniversary in NASCAR. And after running through a few, few grand marshal ideas, uh, I think that we really landed on, on two of the greatest, uh, that have been there since the very beginning, uh, with Lynn and Eddie Wood. So I, I, I think that's going to be awesome. Tell me about the MIDI. How many cars are going to be there? NASCAR themed cars are going to be there. NASCAR themed cars. So, little background it it started out with group eight so group eight is going to be the historic stock cars and those cars when we first started the group eight deal we would get you know maybe seven to ten cars um and then it started growing a little bit more and then we got about 12 to 15 cars and then 20 cars and last year and i'm actually looking at the uh finishing order and everything uh for the race we had 30 cars Um, this year it's probably going to be closer to 35 cars and, uh, it's going to be all makes and models, mainly in the 2000 era. Um, I saw, you know, there's like a 1994 Thunderbird, there's, uh, older Cutlass and, um, but mainly in the 2000. So your Dodge, um, your Chevrolet, your Fords, uh, Toyotas, um, so, those type of cars will, will be in the field. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we've got a group coming up from South Carolina that's going to bring probably somewhere between 25 and 30 cars. And those are going to be the vintage stock cars. Those will be, um, those will be your 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, vintage stock cars. And they're going to be doing some exhibition laps um, throughout, the, throughout the event. Now, are these cars basically that people have obtained from the race teams or how does that work? That that is exactly how that works. So they get some of them from the race teams. Some of them they found on bring a trailer. Some of them they found in different classified ads and they purchase them, uh, get them all fixed up, road worthy, race worthy, ready to go and, uh, and come and race them. And, and we've even had some of the uh, your traditional sports car guys uh, get in the mix too. That's how we've kind of grown this field. They've uh, Carlos Gann and his crew kind of kind of has a car set aside for for some of our sports car guys to test. And as soon as they test it, they get the bug, and then they want one. So they'll start contacting teams or you know look at look at classified ads and and purchase them there. Now, who are some of the competitors that are scheduled to show up? Is Bill Elliott going to be there? Bill Elliott is going to be there. Oh, I just wow. looked at the entry list, entry list. He's going to be there. I believe Joe Nemechek is going to be there. Um, and then we have, you know, the usual uh, suspects um, that that participate in the Group 8 class um, at the MIDI. What is the most important thing that I need to remember when I'm behind the wheel of the pace car? Uh, don't put it in the fence. Basically, <laughs> you're going to have a... You're, you're going to have a right seat in there that'll that, that'll talk you through, and they will they will be listening in on the radio. So the good news is, is all you got to do is drive. All you got to do okay. is just drive the track, and we'll have some we'll have some practice laps before we let you get out there. 
Well, you know, I'm already practicing because Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta is on one of the racing games that I use on my PlayStation 4. So, Rick Humphrey, I've got some laps around your facility. That is very good to hear and very encouraging. Um, I'll let you know that one time, uh, probably shortly after I started uh, my career on this, on the on the IMSA side of the business, at uh, I was at Sebring and they asked me to drive some VIPs around in front of the field prior to the start of the 12-hour event down there. <laughs> and they were literally blowing the horn at me, trying to get me out of the way. So don't be that guy, Rick Houston. <laughs> <laughs> And also, um, Rick Houston wanted to share as well some of the things that Lynn and Eddie will be doing as Grand Marshals. Uh, you know, in, in our sport, the the role is traditionally to give the command to to start the uh, start the engines for the field. But prior to that, they are going to uh, do a question and answer session for the fans at the podium in the uh, in the what we call the infield paddock, which is where the uh, the historic stock cars will be paddocked. For the weekend, and we'd like to ask you to MC or moderate that uh, that Q and A if you would be so kind. Well, you know what? If it comes along with driving the pace car, you can <laughs> ask me to do anything, man. <laughs> I mean, if I have to sweep up the garage after it closes, I'm good to go. <laughs> and then those guys, uh, as well as yourself, will be available to sign some autographs prior to to giving the command. Uh, to start the race, and you jumping in the pace car, and then uh, as uh, we'll wrap up their duties or festivities by them presenting the trophy uh to the to the winning team uh at the end of the the featured race on that day uh of Saturday April 29th. That sounds great, man. Well, guys, listen. Thank you so much. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Anything in particular? So the only other thing to add is uh you can purchase tickets at both websites roadatlanta.com or hsr.com and uh love to have everybody out uh that weekend. Again, you like you said, it's April uh, 28th through the 30th, and uh, please come out and join us for the whole weekend. If not, can't do the whole weekend, make sure you come out on Saturday and and see Lynn and Eddie Wood as well as Rick Houston. Steve, did you catch that? I have another yeah yeah pace car it. gig lined up. I, yeah, I got am it. in demand. Yeah, I know, I know. As a pace car driver, that's enough, Rick. Please be quiet. Spare me. <laughs> Dreams do come true. I'm like water on a rock. Eventually, I'm going to wear you down. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go along with that. It's starting right now, to be honest with you. I think that's the way I got my job with you. <laughs> <laughs> no comments. <laughs> no, so Rick, you, seriously, I'm proud of you. Way to go, man. This, this is really quite another feather in your cap. So, listeners. You have every opportunity in the world to come catch me in the pace truck at Lonesome Pine Motorsports Park every other week throughout the summer. And then also April 28th through the 30th at Michelin Raceway Road, Atlanta. Hi, this is Tommy Houston. Hey, I'm Butch Hilton. Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy Mange. Uh, this is Morgan Shepard. Hey, I'm Slugger Labby, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey, 
Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. One of the things that I enjoy most here on this podcast is aggravating Steve Wade about typos and errors in his stories. Oh, I'm very familiar with that, Rick. Well, here is a chance for you to get some payback. We talked in last week's episode about how well Bobby Labonte ran after breaking his shoulder blade at Darlington in the fall of 1999. Well, Robert Martin, who goes by Speedy Pete on Twitter, tweeted me this note. If my memory serves, and I promise it's right, Bobby Labonte broke his shoulder before the spring Darlington race in 1999, not the fall. Aha. Uh-huh. I texted Bobby to verify, and sure enough, he was hurt at Darlington in the spring of 1999. And so, yes, I got that wrong, and I apologize. Well, Rick, as a journalist, strive for the truth, always. But you're going to make a mistake every now and then. Nobody's perfect. Tony Liberati loves to bust my (laughs) (laughs) you-know-whats over not letting the facts get in the way of a good story, but doggone it. Getting stuff flat out wrong just bugs the absolute crap out of me. And I think it bugs every journalist out there. But, you know, they happen. There is no way around it. And as much as you might dislike it, I got news for you, Rick. It's going to happen again. Steve, I hate to transition from that to this, but one of my best friends when I was on the road with the Bush Series in NASCAR working for Winston Cup scene Charlie Rokes, who now goes by Trip, by his nickname Trip. Charlie last week lost his wife, Grace. That breaks my heart because Charlie, again, like I say, we were really close out on the road, went to many, many, many a Chinese buffet together, went to ball games together. He's the one who introduced me to rendezvous ribs in Memphis, and I will be eternally grateful for that. <laughs> but he and his and Grace's son, Tyler, They lost Grace this past week after a lengthy illness. And Steve, that just breaks my heart. From the deepest part of my heart, I want to express my condolences. And I'm right there with you, Rick. My condolences to you, Charlie. And in honor of Charlie and Tyler, and in memory of Grace, I want to close with Scottish bagpipes playing Amazing Grace. (laughs) 